Good morning. This is Ricky Jones with another broadcast of From Sunday to Monday, the podcast at River Oaks Presbyterian Church, where we try to make what we say to you on Sunday mornings uh, practical. I'm going to do a little curveball and uh, do something different for the next few podcasts. I've been asked by a few people to produce uh, my book on audio, and I will probably never get around to doing that as far as doing it professionally or in a studio, but I would like to make that material available to people. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I did write a book a few a few months ago, and uh, it really is something that is just my story, and it comes from my heart, and it's my best uh, my best illustrations, and I just was as clear as I could be. And so a lot of people have enjoyed it and gotten something out of it, and so I want to make it available on audio so that more people could enjoy it and hopefully be blessed and encouraged by it. So what I'm going to do for the next 10 podcast episodes is read a different chapter from my book each week, and that way you can have the audio book, the audible book, for free. So I hope you will enjoy it. So this is Too Good to Be True by Ricky Jones, Christian Hope and a Hopeless Age, and this is the preface. The first time I yelled at God, he chuckled. <laughs> I was a freshman at Vanderbilt, and the year I enrolled, it had the wealthiest student body of any campus in the country. I studied there with people like Ross Perot's daughter and Roger Stahlbach's daughter. One guy in my hallway was a senator's son, and I felt like he was a king. But I was just a redneck from Dresden, Tennessee. My dad was a truck driver. My mom ran the high school cafeteria. And my going-away party was in a cow pasture. I showed up with Van at Vanderbilt with my nicest pair of shoes, which were stained with cow manure. It's true. I even wore a t-shirt that said, Rick the lifeguard, airbrushed on the front. Nothing about me fit in there, and I was extremely lonely. But that's not why I yelled at God. That was part of it. I was sick of not having friends. But a bigger part of it was that family life had not worked out for me at all. My mom had been divorced once before she met my dad, and then my dad stopped coming home when I was in, high, in junior high. However, I kept praying that he would return. Some of my strongest religious memories were of being at prayer meetings as a fourth grader and a fifth grader. When our whole church would meet together, well, that were only about 20 of us, I would stand up in front of the adults and beg God for my dad to come home. Again and again, I pleaded that my dad would come home, but he never did, and I was mad about that. When I went to college, I was the good guy, the moral guy. I never got drunk until I was an adult. I never had sex. I was doing everything I possibly could to be right, and it just wasn't helping at all. So when my brother's wife asked him for a divorce, it felt like a tipping point. I started praying and fasting over and over. Every day I would fast for part of the day through one meal at least and beg the Lord to change her mind. He didn't. And when they got a divorce, I was just done. I remember going out into the middle of campus by myself and yelling at God. I said, what good are you? If you can't even save a marriage, what good are you? Then I felt scared because I was very serious. I was sick of it. I was dumb with God. I yelled, I don't even believe in you anymore. And I promise, in the darkness, I felt him chuckle and say, if you don't believe me, then who are you talking to? I was frustrated, but I knew he was right. I thought, well, clearly I do believe in you because I'm yelling at you. And so at that point, I realized that peace wasn't going to be found by running away from him. I had to figure out who he was. So I started by giving more, and my, more of myself to him. 
My sophomore year of college, I went to six Bible studies a week and prayer meetings at 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. Every ministry on campus thought I was their most committed student. I was trying to earn God's favor. I spent the summer between my freshman and sophomore year at a Christian camp, and I loved it. But I couldn't go back there the next summer because I felt like those people were too rich and too white, and true Christians didn't work in a place like that. So the next summer, I worked in an inner-city ministry, which was a disaster. I didn't have the patience for it, and I was far too intense. At one point, I threw a basketball at one of the kids, and I was screaming in his face because I wanted him to punch me. He didn't, of course, but I was a total failure. I kept trying harder and harder, and I kept failing over and over. It became a pattern in my life. This picture that haunted me was a picture of a Christian who had Jesus on the throne of his life, and as a result, all the dots of his life were in order. His life is supposed to be settled. He has victory over sin. He wants to witness. He wants to pray. He wants to read his Bible. And that picture was just never, ever me. I wanted to study. I wanted to sleep. And I wanted to chase girls. I hated talking to people about Jesus. And I'm still a terrible evangelist. I couldn't be what I was convinced that I ought to be. And the sin that I was committing never stopped or even slowed down. I would wake up every weekend in shame, thinking God must be ashamed of me. I kept trying harder and harder, and finally, I got sick of trying, and I wanted to quit. Around that same time, Reformed University Fellowship came to Vanderbilt. I was one of the first students that the campus minister met with, and I very clearly remember telling him how burned out I was, how tired I was of trying to make God like me, how tired I was that I felt like I was the most Christian of all the people I knew, and yet nothing really worked out for me. I was really pissed at my dad because he was trying to get back in my life like nothing had ever happened and I didn't know what to do. I felt pressured to forgive him because it was a Christian thing to do, but I also kind of hated him. I had this inner battle going on and I just dumped all this stuff on the minister. He listened and finally said, let me ask you this question. You say you're the only Christian you know? I nodded and he asked, why? Why are you the spiritual one? I didn't say anything. He said, well, let me ask you this. Did any of your friends grow up going to church? I said, yeah, everyone I knew went to church. He said, did any of them go to a better church than you? Yeah, a lot of them did. Did any of them have better families than you? Well, yeah, I guess I'm the only one I know whose dad left. Then why are you a Christian and they're not? At that point, I was stuck because everything about me believed that the answer to that question was, I'm better than they are. However, I knew that couldn't be the answer, right? I mean, the Bible says something about grace. I knew that much, but I didn't know what the answer he was looking for, so I just didn't say anything. Then the Bible began talking to me about true, unconditional grace. He said, when your dad left, why didn't you go with him? What makes you so much better than him? Now, I wanted to get so badly at that point to get mad and yell. I wanted to defend myself and say, because I'm better than he is. But that was just my pride speaking. I began to realize I was just as selfish as anyone. My selfishness looked different. Instead of yelling, I began to learn about grace, grace that I did not earn. I began to learn that I did not earn God's concern for me. I did not make him start liking me. His love for me didn't start when I started doing good things. I loved him because he loved me first. And then grace began to make a difference in my life. For the first time ever, I had assurance of salvation. It was exciting. I felt loved and free for the first time. 
Yet I found that even though I had assurance of salvation, I was still very self-righteous and sometimes very mean. God just did not step in and fix me right away. I went on to seminary and got my theology very precise. I came out of seminary well-intentioned, well-educated, but intolerable. As a youth minister while I was there, a group of students once asked me to play Dumb and Dumber, but I, and I responded by throwing their movie out of a moving bus. I was super right-wing in my theology and my politics, and my basic thought was, if you don't agree with me, not only are you wrong, but you are also an idiot. Nonetheless, I still believed I was a gifted minister. I kept hearing how good I was, and I kept believing it. Everyone always tells their preacher how good they are, but only few of us actually believe it. And yet nothing was really happening in my ministry. People weren't really attracted to the gospel or to me. For five years, I was a minister at Delta State University, but I never had more than 40 students really committed to the ministry. I decided that it was because I was too good to be there, which is odd, but arrogance is delusional. I started looking for other jobs, and in a 10-month period, I was turned down 13 times. With the first couple of rejections, I thought, well, these guys are idiots. Can you believe they didn't hire me? But at some point, I started to realize, maybe the problem is me. During that time, I was at a meeting at Independent Presbyterian in Memphis, and I was standing at a urinal, of all places, next to my friend Jean LaRue. I was applying for a position as the campus minister at Auburn, and Jean asked if it looked like I was going to get the job. I said, no, I couldn't even get to an interview. He said, you know, that's too bad. You would have been a perfect campus minister there. It suits you perfectly. But you know what? When I first met you, you were a real jerk to me. You need to work on that first impression thing. And I thought, well, that's an odd thing to hear at a urinal. But I took his words to heart. I started asking people how they perceived me, and I started praying to God to change things. As I did, I started to see things about myself that I didn't like. I wasn't very gentle, and I wasn't very kind. One day, my wife, Bianca, left me with our two boys. They were two and three at the time. We had a little courtyard where they could play, and I could watch them from inside. So while they entertained themselves, I went to my bedroom and got on my knees. I started praying that God would make me more gentle, praying over the fruits of the Spirit. Suddenly, one of my boys started crying and didn't stop. I got more and more annoyed that he wouldn't stop crying, and that he was interrupting my prayers, prayers that would make me a gentler person. It finally hit me how ironic that was. So I got up, opened the door, and found he had blood coming out of the back of his head. He'd fallen into a French drain and smacked his head, and I thought, great. I, I thought this gentleness thing was an abstract thing that I was praying for, but I really am broken. My selfishness is hurting the very people I love most. I realized I needed to change. Well, just because you realize something about yourself does not mean you have the ability to change it. Soon after my realization, I went and talked to some of my campus minister buddies of mine, and I said, Guys, am I the guy at the dinner table with barbecue sauce all over his chin, but no one has the courage to tell him to wipe it? My friend Fritz Games said, Ricky, you have a chip on your shoulder so big nobody can get near you without knocking it off. It hurt. That night was the second time I yelled at God, but this time I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at myself. I went to bed that night crying out, Lord, I know you didn't die for me to leave me a jerk like this. I started begging him to change me. Soon after that, I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson where he said, you treat other people exactly the same way you believe God has treated you. I started thinking, how do I believe God has treated me? 
In my mind, God was the policeman in my rearview mirror. He didn't have his lights on yet, but he was just waiting for me to do something wrong. He was just waiting, and I was never good enough for him. Sinclair talked about the goodness of God and believing it, and that really became a theme of my ministry. Once I realized I could trust God, that he cared for me, and I was precious to him, my ministry became more gentle and more grace-filled. I started focusing on people who had grown up in the church but did not believe God was kind. I very, very clearly remember being in an empty football stadium with a student once. She was crying, and she said, You kept talking about the goodness of God, but the God I grew up believing in just wasn't very good. He was just never happy with me. He was never satisfied. I took joy in teaching her and the other students that God was not only satisfied with them, he was thrilled with them. He was overjoyed by them. I started working as a campus minister for Mississippi State and began to believe that God liked me. Although I was spending a lot of time around broken people, I still felt unhappy with myself. I never thought I was doing enough. I had this drive, and eventually I left Mississippi State because the job was just too easy. There was a kind of gnawing dissatisfaction inside of me that I had to do, be doing something harder. If I wasn't, God wouldn't be pleased with me, and I wouldn't be pleased with myself. I left my Mississippi and threw myself into planning a church that didn't grow very quickly. The job was more difficult than I had expected, but at least I was finally doing something hard enough for me. However, over and over, I was disappointed with myself. I felt God was disappointed in me. I yelled at him for the third time. But this time, it wasn't yelling out because I was mad at him or mad at myself. I was just crying, I'm doing all I can do here, and it's never enough. Now, living in Tulsa, I was becoming burned out again. During this time, while on a treadmill at the gym one afternoon, I had a vision. Now, don't get afraid. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm probably more Presbyterian than you are. So if you're uncomfortable with visions, let me tell you, I was more uncomfortable with them. But you don't have to call it a vision. You can call it a daydream or a God, God's providential wandering of my mind. It doesn't matter. It happened. It was on a Monday, and hardly anyone had come to church the day before. I had this vision of me coming off of a football field and having lost the game. Jesus was my coach, and I threw myself on his shoulder crying. I said I did everything I could. I tried as hard as I could. The vision solidified what I had believed about myself and the ministry, that I was never good enough for him. Three weeks later, I was on that treadmill again, and I had the same vision. But this time, when I started crying on his shoulder, saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I just couldn't do it, Jesus took my head in his hands, looked me in the eye and said, Ricky, you're in the band. You're not on the team. Ricky, I won the game. The game is over. Your job is not to score touchdowns and win the game. Your job is to play the fight song and let everybody know that I already won. Relax. The game is over. I won it. He began to show me that I had a completely false idea about what he wanted from me. I was trying so hard to earn forgiveness, to earn the death of Christ. I had a completely broken idea of what he was expecting of me, and he finally began to change that. About six weeks after the day dream, I had a third and final vision. Maybe Tulsa is a city of visions. Bianca, I had been on 
Bianca and I had been on a date the night before, and it was a beautiful date. At some point during the evening, I looked at her, and I could see in her eyes how much she was enjoying having me there. As she smiled at me, I could tell I was making her as happy as she made me. The next day, I got up, and I was praying, and God began to reveal to me that this is how He looks at me. He looks at me with happiness in His eyes. Suddenly, scripture texts that I had been saying every week since I had been a minister began to make sense to me. All of a sudden, the lights came on. God is delighted with me. Through this experience, God began to heal some very old scars. Ever since those dark days at college, I felt like no one really wanted me around. I felt like I was a burden on people. The thought, the truth that God, the creator of all things, likes me and is crazy about me and wants me around so much that he gave up his only son for me, it overwhelmed me like a wrecking ball. On Sundays at the end of church, I say a benediction like this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Except I don't really say those words anymore because I say what they actually mean. May the Lord make his face smile upon you. That's what God wants for you to know, that he is smiling on you. Some Sundays I say, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He celebrates over you with loud singing. I really mean it. He's delighted with you. You make him happy. He is happy to be alone with you. When I was in seminary, my pastor, Jim Baird, would say at the end of every worship service at First Presbyterian Church, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. It never occurred to me that that's not our joy. That text is saying that, that Jesus, Jesus, when he presents you before the throne of God, will be giddy over you. He'll be saying, look, we got him here. He's that delighted with you. Or when Hebrews says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you realize what that's saying? What motivated Jesus to leave heaven and take on the form of a human, to suffer all the shame and the scorn of the cross, was the joy of having you. He is delighted in you. When that was finally revealed to me, when I finally understood it, I thought it was too good to be true. Now that is pretty much the only thing I focus on in my ministry. And I've written this book for people who grew up in the church but don't think God likes them. Based on my experience, I think there's a lot of you around. And I want this book to find its way into every one of your hands and for you to realize that he is just giddy over you. In other words, he likes you. I hope you've enjoyed this reading of the preface of Too Good to Be True. Tune in next week and we will read chapter one.